this is Peter P. Trout. You're listening to The Near Future, where you can prepare today for the creative marketplace of tomorrow. We are continuing our series of interviews with top thought leaders today. We've got Phil Simon, who is a prolific author, a public speaker, a futurist, and a consultant to more than 100 companies. He helps them optimize their use of technology. Among the books that he has written just in the last few years, Why New Systems Fail, The Next Wave of Technologies, The New Small, The Age of the Platform, which we'll be discussing today, Too Big to Ignore, The Business Case for Big Data, and coming up soon, The Visual Organization, Data Visualization, Big Data, and The Quest for Better Decisions. Most of his work focuses around big companies and their use of technology. But what's interesting is that a lot of these ideas still apply to you, even if you are an artist or a creator. As long as you are using the digital domain, there are certain trends that you want to be able to take advantage of. Um, So I'm going to give you quickly a, a brief introduction to the age of the platform. Buoyed by the success of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, companies of all sizes are fundamentally rethinking how they do business. They are creating vibrant ecosystems and in the process reaping big rewards. So first we're going to kind of kick off the interview with a definition of terms. Phil uses the term platform and plank in very specific ways. Here's how he puts that together. To me, I sort of distinguish between platforms with a big P and platforms with a little P. Platforms with a little P, I think, have been around for a long time. Um, If you go back to early operating systems, you could build Windows apps on on top of them. But those really weren't informing those companies' business models. Contrast that with, say, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, and some other companies like Twitter. These companies have created APIs, application programming interfaces, that allow data to flow back and forth and machines to talk to each other, and also SDKs, software development kits. So they encourage people to build apps on top of their products and services. You can take them into different directions. So a lot of what defines a platform is that the user base is actively contributing to the quality and the features of that product or service. And we're not just talking about bells and whistles. A lot of times the central, most popular things about a product or service are often coming from the outside. A lot of people don't realize that the first version of Twitter, for instance, did not quote-unquote ship with a retweet button. That was something that came from the community. Somebody said, and I forget the guy's name, there's got to be a better way of doing this. So they, Twitter has the retweet button. Ditto the hashtag. That didn't exist in the initial incarnation of Twitter. Beyond the idea of a platform, Phil also talks about the idea of a plank, which is a sister offering from your core business. Amazon.com is probably the easiest example of this. And amazingly enough, they started out many years ago as just a bookseller. So that one company has really kind of reinvented and defined numerous things that we now take for granted in the digital economy from the suggestion feature, that if you buy something, many other things might be suggested to you through an algorithm, the Kindle, which literally reinvented the publishing industry, and AWS, which Phil talks about. In 1994, when Jeff Bezos conceived of the company, at the time he was working in a hedge fund and making a lot of money, but he had this idea to basically be the place in which anyone could buy any book. Well, if you pay attention these days, you realize that Amazon sells a lot more than books. You know, forget DVDs and and groceries. I I love the fact that I could subscribe to beef jerky and vegetables, and they deliver every month to my doorstep on Amazon. Uh, Amazon last year made, by some estimates, $2.5 billion dollars 
just on selling excess compute power with Amazon Web Services. Companies like Netflix are based entirely on the AWS infrastructure. Now, Jeff Bezos is probably one of the smartest guys on the planet, but don't tell me that in 1994 he said, and in 20 years we'll be making billions selling excess compute power. So that's what I'm talking about when you enter adjacent lines of business. It is not simply about just focusing on one thing. A big point that Phil's making is that as the digital economy evolves, this idea of having a platform or a plank goes from being more of a strategic option to almost being a necessity. I think they're essential today because the world changes very quickly. If you only do one thing and find a niche, historically I think you've been able to, depending on the niche, do reasonably well. But I would argue that technology changes things faster than ever. Um, you may be leaving a great deal of money on the table. That doesn't mean that a small company can be everything to everybody. But just as an example, to me, it's not completely ridiculous for a web design firm to maybe do a little bit with SEO or do a little bit with social media. Maybe they hire a few employees, maybe they strike a partnership. To me, those are adjacent lines of businesses because if you have the relationship with the customer and they think you do a good job, a job with web design, they, they might trust you to do something related. Transitioning now to the world of artists and creators, OKPlayer.com is a great example developed by Questlove of the band The Roots. It is an online forum that allows fans to discover artists and also artists to discover other artists to be able to collaborate with, uh, featuring Talib Kweli, D'Angelo, Jill Scott, many others. It is a perfect example of a band or artist developing into alternative avenues. There's lots of different ways that this can happen, and it's definitely a big part of where the music industry is going. Phil gave us a lot of other examples from the music community as well. Now, Kickstarter is a very popular, very um, well-known funding platform. I, I think they've raised something like $800 million for projects. So if you are an artist and you're trying to raise money for an album, you can go there, you can go to Pledge Music, you can go to Indiegogo. Uh, we've seen many successful projects. Uh, Jordan Rudess, who's the keyboardist of one of my favorite bands, Dream Theater, recently funded one of his solo projects on Pledge Music. Zach Braff raised over $2 million on Kickstarter for one of his movies. Veronica Mars raised, what was it, five, six, six million? I forget the number. The English band Marillion, well before there was anything like Kickstarter, used the internet and used a database of email address to connect directly with fans, not only to fund several albums, but also to, to fund a tour of the United States. They're based in London, and when they canceled their U.S. tour because the record company wouldn't give them any money, uh, a fan famously emailed the keyboardist Mark Kelly and said, how much do you need to come over here? And, and this was 1999. The web was just starting to take root. And, and Kelly, they write about this in the, um, the biography separated out by John Collins. Uh, Kelly was really taken aback, but he decided to indulge the fan and said, we need $60,000. And he never thought he'd hear from him again. A couple weeks later, the fan emails and said, hey, here's the bank statement. We're up to 20000 One of Phil's biggest takeaways is probably that while the digital economy has kind of wreaked havoc on certain portions of the music industry, and particularly the traditional distribution model of that industry, there are so many opportunities to utilize the digital domain in new ways and literally kind of recreate what you do and how you do it as an artist. Yes, people were stealing music. Napster was hurting a lot of artists. And to this day, privacy is a problem. So as Melvin Kranzberg once said, technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. 
So yes, the technology, the internet have harmed musicians to some extent, particularly with regard to pri uh, piracy, but it's also opened up opportunities. And if you're an artist, whether you're a writer or a director or a musician, you can reach fans directly. And the power of that cannot be understated. Think about it. I don't know anyone who goes into a bookstore and says, I have to own the next book from Penguin Publishing, right? Or I need to buy the next record from EMI. Nothing against those companies. It's just not how people think. This is not a car, right? But for a band like Rush or for an author like Michael Lewis, I don't care who publishes their work or produces their album or in the case of a director makes their movie. I like the actor. I like the musician. I like the author. I'm going to buy it regardless. So there's really been this, I would argue, sea change. Artists can reach fans directly through some of these funding platforms. In addition to generating new forms of revenue and new ways to get your music out there, Phil also feels that the digital domain really lends itself to taking more creative risks. And this kind of touches upon something that we mentioned in our last interview with Gerd Leonard, that you have these new generatives around the music that provide you opportunities to push the boundaries of what you would normally do with a single or with an album or with a tour. I don't think it's a coincidence that bands like Marillion and Dream Theater and Porcupine Tree are releasing uh, much more, um, what do I want to say, um, artistic versions of their albums. Uh, yes, you can do the download, that's a given, but a, an actual kind of artifact of that time for the band, you'll see, will go for 50 or or $100, and those typically sell out. So I do think that in a digital world, a lot of times people do want to have that memento of that era and not just dial, you know, dial something up on their iPhone or their iPod. So hopefully we've given you some new ideas, maybe inspired you to look at your creative career in a new light. For more information on Phil Simon, you can find him online at philsimon.com, P-H-I-L-S-I-M-O-N.com. You can find us online at artofmusicla.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast at the near future to make sure that you catch all of our upcoming interviews. Please feel free to leave some comments and suggestions if you wish. And you can find us on Twitter at Mandeville Canyon, M-A-N-D-E-V-I-L-L-E-C-Y-N. Thank you for listening. Till next time.